Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. In one of the darker moments of the American Revolution, Benjamin Franklin said to his fellow patriots, we must all hang together or assuredly we shall hang separately. Coming together to make this country a better place, while not new, is still needed. Thankfully, organizations like the American Association for Physician Leadership and America's Physician Groups help the medical profession in our nation. Today, I am pleased to speak with the President and CEO of America's Physician Groups. This will be an informative and insightful conversation you will not want to miss. Next on Sound Practice. Susan Denser is President and Chief Executive Officer of America's Physician Groups. She is a national health policy thought leader. Ms. Denser serves on many national boards, including the National Academy of Medicine. Susan Denser, welcome to Sound Practice. Great to be with you, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. It is my pleasure. What's the mission of America's Physician Groups? America's Physician Groups, APG, represents about 360 medical groups now across most of the country. We have members in all but a handful of states. And our members share one thing in common, which is that they are committed to the transition away from conventional fee-for-service payment for the services that they deliver to value-based care models, where they truly are held accountable for the costs and the quality of care provided to their patients. Uh, They believe that these models have in them the right incentives that will drive physicians and physician groups and all the clinical people associated with the groups and indeed everybody affiliated with the groups in the common direction of being accountable for high quality care for patients, but at reasonable cost. Uh, By removing the automatic incentives in the fee-for-service system toward more volume and paying them indeed more for results, uh, and ideally, of course, in the future, we hope that everybody is paid on the outcomes they achieve for patients as much as anything, not just the processes of care that they deliver, but being held accountable Uh, through the various models, whether it is Medicare Advantage, whether it is uh, one or another forms of an accountable care organization, all the models that have been innovated by CMS and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, by being in one of those models, or in some cases, multiple aspects of those models, they believe that they are really driving toward maximum accountability, again, for the quality of care for patients and, frankly, for the costs paid by many of the nation's taxpayers, uh, premium payers, et cetera, who are really funding the healthcare system. You mentioned that you have members in the vast majority of, of states. Maybe we could talk a little bit more about your membership and what if there is a typical member, what what it uh, what that group looks like? Well, collectively, our members serve about ninety million patients uh, across the country, and they do that in various ways. Uh, some of our groups are the very large groups affiliated with Kaiser Permanente, for example. 
uh, the Permanente Medical Group, the Southern California Permanente Group, the Northwest Permanente Group, et cetera. Uh, those, of course, are organized as separate physician groups that essentially contract with one entity, which is Kaiser Permanente, to provide care for all the enrollees within Kaiser Permanente. So those are at the sort of the large end. At the opposite end, we have smaller groups, more localized groups that uh, may be in some instances uh, affiliated with a hospital or health system. Uh, they can be standalone groups uh, that are uh, competing for contracts. Um, a number of our California groups traditionally for years have been organized in independent practice associations, uh, a model that uh, took hold in California a number of years ago. So we do have a range of our members, but again, the common denominator is a commitment to value-based care. And we pick up more members every day who are moving more and more in that direction. Uh, as you know, the uh, government has now called on all traditional Medicare enrollees uh, to be in accountable relationships with their providers by the year 2030. That's not just a call on enrollees, that's a call for the system to move more in the direction of these accountable relationships between those in traditional Medicare and those in um, uh, who are providing services, healthcare services to them to have those accountable relationships. That's been a wake-up call for parts of the country that have not traditionally embraced value-based care. And so we pick up more members every day who are figuring out how do I get into a Medicare shared savings program arrangement? How do I get ready to be in a, a, a party to an accountable care organization agreement, et cetera? So we think the future is very bright for uh, the value-based care movement and of course for APG as a consequence. Excellent. Um, in preparing to speak with you, I reviewed several issues of Washington Update, which is APG's newsletter, which extraordinarily well, well done, full of very quality uh, information. It's clear that, to me at least, that APG has its finger on has its finger on the pulse of of Congress. Can you tell our audience a little bit about the the newsletter and how they might subscribe? Absolutely, uh, this is a service that we provide primarily for our members, but it is uh, really open to anybody who wants to subscribe to it. Uh, you can subscribe just by going to our website, APG.org. Um, what we do in Washington Update is we try in a very succinct way to summarize the top issues at uh, the congressional level and at the agency level, CMS, for example, and CMMI in particular, but not just limited to those. If there's a, a rule that has been uh, a proposed rule that has been submitted to the Office of Management and Budget for review, and that's, of course, a White House activity, we'll capture that in our um, uh, in our newsletter as well, assuming it's of relevance to our members. So again, in a succinct way, we try to encapsulate the key items of the week that have uh, appeared either in, within Congress or within the agencies. Uh, we include a number of links to provide additional background on particular issues that we're highlighting. And we really try to keep people up to speed with what is happening in any given week uh, in issues that matter to them as, as APG member groups. 
Well, I certainly recommend it to to our audience. You've been speaking about value-based care and the the accountability, and it it, it strikes me that it is um, really a market economy response to to healthcare, not dissimilar to the way the rest of the the market works for professionals, whether it's the legal profession, accounting profession, engineer. Right there's there's accountability and um, people get paid more or less based upon their outcomes and, and and abilities. Why do you think healthcare has not adopted that model traditionally? Uh, I th- I think at a very basic level, uh, change is hard, uh, and um, much of the healthcare sector has done so well, relatively speaking, over the years. I know uh, I- any given day you can hear loud complaints about uh, the Medicare uh, physician fee levels, et cetera, et cetera. But look, on balance, uh, we didn't get to having uh, almost a fifth of the economy related to healthcare without people being paid fairly well in the process. And as we know, if we look across uh, the world, uh, the U.S. not only has the highest share of GDP devoted to healthcare of any nation, uh, we have the highest price level for healthcare of any nation. And the only real reason that is probably the case is that it could happen, right? You could charge high prices, relatively speaking, certainly relative to the rest of the world, and get paid relatively well for doing it. Now, this is a generalization. It doesn't hold up for every aspect of healthcare delivered in this country. God only knows we have uh, safety net providers who are really underpaid, and we have aspects of healthcare that that arguably underpay providers. Uh, We give you, for example, the Medicaid program which clearly in many states, the payment of lo- uh, the payment levels are so low that uh, it, it's, it's hard to uh, c- construe that as a really effective way of delivering high quality health care or a payment method that will deliver high quality health care in the end to those individuals who are involved. But uh, as I say, by and large, the system's done pretty darn well, and there hasn't been the uh, conventional burning platform, so-called, that would force a lot of entities to change. I think that is changing. Uh, If you talk to people uh, who are looking at uh, government payment levels broadly, I'm thinking particularly of MedPAC, uh, the Medicare Payment Assessment uh, Commission, Payment isn't going up anytime soon in the public programs. Uh, And in fact, there's going to be increasing pressure on payment in the public programs. Too many, uh, for a long time, uh, entities could live with what they perceived as underpayment on the public program side because they could get arguably overpayment on the commercial side. That's probably going away. And part of the reason it's going away is that everybody's kind of figured out that the dominant business model of American healthcare appears to have been pricing itself out of the affordability of almost everybody in the country. Now, that's not a long-term viable proposition for survival. Uh, And again, not every entity is doing that. Not everybody is uh, trying to make a killing in healthcare, but enough of the system has operated on that level that there really haven't been overall spending constraints 
on healthcare in the United States. And in fact, we pride ourselves on that to some degree. We talk about, you know, the free market still having a home in the US healthcare system. We pay a price for that. And the price increasingly seems to be that it's simply unaffordable for many individuals. On top of that, we know that the inputs coming into healthcare are driving a lot of cost pressure right now, particularly labor. Um, all of our groups certainly have experienced a very difficult labor market situation uh, uh, over the past year in particular, even, even coming out of the worst phases of the pandemic. If anything, they feel that pressure. They see wages going up. They find it difficult to recruit uh, physicians. They see a lot of competition for the available bodies. And in particular areas like mental health, they simply cannot find people to deliver care. Uh, so you put all of that together, and it says we cannot we cannot go on this way. Uh, the late great economist Herb Stein used to say something that cannot go on forever will stop. It looks like we're hitting that stopping point, or I guess maybe it's better to say a slowing down point, where. Uh, entities, I think, are recognizing that you know trees are not going to continue to grow to the sky. Uh, we're going to have to work with the budget of healthcare, such as it is, uh, and try to make care more available and more affordable with the money that we have in the system and with the resources that we have in the system. And that is going to compel us to practice care in different ways and get paid for care in different ways. And if particularly we care about the outcomes of care, we really need to take value-based care seriously. If you think about it, we spend pretty close to double the share of GDP on healthcare in the US as does Britain, but we achieve basically the exact same health outcomes that they do. Now, a lot of that is related to the upstream drivers of health, the social, so-called social determinants, and the fact that there are many aspects of our individual health that really lie outside the healthcare system. It's our incomes, our education level, what kind of communities we live in. Those We know from the literature, those are much bigger drivers of individual access of individual health status than our access to clinical care. But nonetheless, what we also know from looking at that cross-national data is you can't take people who are predisposed not to be all that healthy, wait till they get sick, and then throw them into the most expensive healthcare system in the world and expect it all to work. And that's what we have historically been doing as a nation. So if we're going to do things differently, we're going to have to think about, just as I said earlier, working within the amount of money that the society is willing to devote to healthcare, making it more affordable, making it more accessible, and frankly, being held accountable for producing better health outcomes to the degree that clinical care matters than we're getting. So that's the argument for really embracing value-based care models. And that's why our groups have, have, have already had that wake-up call and are encouraging so many others to come along with them. Well, it certainly is a, a strong argument. Let's shift gears for, for just a moment. As you know, in, in June of um, 
2022, the United States Supreme Court released its decision in uh, the case of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. And this opinion has uh, far-reaching implications for physicians. Does APG provide information uh, on these type of issues to its members? We are watching how this issue plays out for our members to try to see whether we can discern any um, concrete patterns that are really disadvantaging them at this moment. Um, one reason why we um, are somewhat different, I think, from other groups that are very laudably focused on this issue night and day and, and alerting their members almost 24-7 on, on implications is our groups uh, largely tend to be focused on more primary care. Uh, some of them are obviously providing uh, obstetrical and gynecological services. Many of them tend to be in states that have not enacted particularly stringent uh, anti-abortion provisions, either pre or post the Dobbs decision. So there has been relatively little impact on practice in those areas of the country. By contrast, we have others groups that are in areas of the country that are very much affected by this. Um, and uh, to that degree, they're getting a lot of very useful information already from more local entities than, than from national groups like APG. But I think more broadly, um, what we have tried to acknowledge to our members, and I think they fully recognize, is that uh, if the very restrictive abortion, uh, anti-abortion provisions that many states have enacted are any guide to what could happen in the future, there are going to be other measures that intervene uh, to really militate against uh, physician-patient relationships and the ability of patients to consult with their physicians and get physicians' best advice about what is a, a, an optimal uh, avenue of care for them in any particular situation. And obviously, with respect to uh, pregnant women who are at risk of very bad birth-related outcomes who may be outside the window that a lot of states are now allowing for abortion uh, to the degree that uh, anything that physicians could do in that context to them could be potentially criminalized. Uh, that is very worrisome to all physicians in, in all of our groups. And so we're watching very, very carefully to see not just what is the impact around uh, obstetrical and gynecological care uh, or emergency level obstetric services, uh, but more broadly, is this a harbinger of things to come? Is this a harbinger where social issues uh, essentially trump uh, that physician-patient relationship and those kinds of very important aspects of healthcare in America that many of us hold very, very dear. So we're watching that closely and we're going to inform members if we see signs that this terrible trend is potentially spreading to other areas of care. What issues are you hearing from your membership about? What's, what's keeping members awake at night? Well, the number one issue at the moment that I mentioned uh, a moment ago is labor, labor costs, labor availability. Uh, we have groups that traditionally 
didn't have a lot of problem recruiting uh, newly minted physicians to come and enter their practices, for example, uh, or were able to persuade people from other parts of the country to move to high cost areas of the country, for example, California, by making sure that those visits uh, from uh, potential uh, new physicians occurred in February, where the weather is very lovely compared to much of the rest of the country. Uh, they didn't have problems with recruitment. Now they do. Uh, they, uh, they, the market is very, very competitive for new physicians and particularly for primary care physicians. And we can see that that is a classic supply and demand equation because we have so many fewer uh, uh, young medical students and residents and so on going into primary care than we need. So if you're looking for a primary care physician, life is tough for you right now. You have a little better uh, uh, odds of success if you're willing to broaden your primary care network, as many of our groups have long ago done by building out the ranks of advanced practice nurses. Uh, that's been a very important avenue for many of our groups, and it will continue to be physician assistance by the same token. But we also know that the trends that are pulling physicians away from primary care are also pulling many PAs and NPs away from primary care as well, uh, as specialty care continues to be so much better compensated overall than primary care in this country. So that's, that's a problem. Uh, they even see difficulties with recruitment at the medical assistant level in some very competitive markets of the country where they may believe that they've hired a new medical assistant only to find out on that MA's first day that they've actually gone to work for one of the tech companies. Now, as their layoffs have occurred in the tech sector, maybe that won't moderate a bit, but it's a competitive market. And if you think about the fact that by and large, labor costs in healthcare are, you know, depending on the entity, 50, 60 plus percent of the overall cost structure, if you're having difficulties with recruitment, if wages are being bid up, that's a problem and it hits right at the bottom line. And as we mentioned earlier with the prospects for reimbursement continuing to be on the public program side, pretty flat and possibly declining in real terms of inflation adjusted terms and commercial payers saying, oh, wait a minute, you're not gonna push all of these costs onto us. That's a problem. And some organizations uh, have the ability to continue to adapt uh, modes of practice, but others are going to have to do that. And on top of that, they know they're competing with other business models of healthcare delivery now that don't look a lot like what they did or have a slightly different approach. And lots of new entrants into healthcare who are prepared to do things differently, whether it's all of the entities that have bought uh, primary care groups, whether it is uh, some of the retail entities like Walmart getting into healthcare more actively, uh, there's, there's, there's going to be competition. So I would say, by and large, it's that labor cost issue as symptomatic of a lot of the changes occurring, both within the economy broadly and even society broadly, because as we know, some of this is being driven by the aging of the population in this country. And people getting to a point where they're retiring from clinical practice, et cetera. That's a, a, just a re demographic reality that we've seen coming in this country for some time. 
And then I would also point to some immigration constraints. Uh, a lot of our healthcare sector, as we know, has been populated over time by people educated abroad in healthcare who then come to the US or by immigrant populations coming into healthcare. And as we continue to constrain the inflow of, of immigration in this country, which we have done, we are turning off to some degree that tap as well. So all of that's um, very much on their minds these days. And uh, I think they're they're hoping to some degree that uh, things will come back into more equilibrium in the future, but we don't necessarily see a lot of signs at a fundamental level that this whole issue of healthcare workforce supply is being adequately addressed. Well, there doesn't seem to be much happiness down that trail. So let's switch to a different um, a different topic. I noticed that you're on the advisory um, uh, a board for the Center for uh, Global Health Equity at Dartmouth, and that you are also on the advisory board for Dartmouth's uh, Geisel School of of Medicine. Are our country's medical schools preparing students to handle professional compensation issues in is that even an appropriate role for a medical school? Well, ju just a brief co uh, correction. I, I was on the advisory board for the Geisel School for many, many years. In fact, I used to joke that I more or less I had gone through, met, I felt as if I'd gone through medical school about six time because I was on that board for a number of years. I'm off that board now, but I do remain on the board of advisors for the Center for Global Health Equity. And previous to that, I was a, a longtime trustee for Dartmouth overall, and I was also on the board of the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health Center in a, on an ex officio basis uh, during that time. Um, are medical schools preparing students to handle professional compensation issues? I would say medical schools, for all kinds of good reasons, um, are, I think mostly good reasons, some problematic reasons, aren't preparing medical students to live in the world of US healthcare um, very much at all. Um, and part of that is the medical school curriculum, uh, even though places like Dartmouth have adapted their curriculums over the years, a lot of it is just still so restricted to some of the fundamental issues of understanding the mechanisms of the human body, number one, and also close-in competencies of being a physician, which are important. But those essentially dominate the medical school curriculum, and there isn't a lot of room left for other things. I have taught at the Geisel School in a... Um, a, a fourth year elective that has been in place for a number of years. It's gone through various iterations, but it's essentially it's called Physician Health and Society. It's it's an elective, so you don't have to take it in your fourth year. Some, a number of students do. But for many students, um, the, the lecture that I give on health policy is the one lecture on health policy issues that they get. Uh, over the course, even in that in that context. Now, aspects of health policy creep into some other lectures. But if you think about it, if you're going through medical school, and this is kind of the first 
sort of briefing, brief briefing, I should say, that you get that says there's a big wide world out there where all the things I just talked about are happening, you know, labor cost issues, uh, primary care, lack of access issues, um, uh, demographic change, uh, social determinants producing more of our health outcomes in life than clinical care. If 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 that the, that this is sort of the first inkling you get that all of that is the fundamental reality that you're going into, that's wrong <laughs> to me. That's wrong. I don't know what the corrective is because I recognize there are a lot of really important things that medical students have to learn. But I do think um, we we deprive them of a lot of understanding about the world that they're actually going into. And when they go into it, sometimes it's a rude shock and a rude awakening. Now, can they adjust over time the way everybody ends up doing? Yes, I'm sure. If you're a really bright person and you've learned how to understand reality, you can pick this up. But it is still to this day somewhat surprising to me when I speak with um, really highly competent physicians, how little they understand about the policy background to healthcare in this country and how deeply frustrating it must be to them because they don't have that understanding. And sometimes understanding that the world just doesn't work all that well. But even sort of understanding that is uh, is is a big gives you a big advantage in my view uh, to being uh, able to function well as a clinician. And even more important, why wouldn't you want to own some aspect of the need for change? Um, why wouldn't you want to acknowledge that you have a role? You have your very very important role vis-a-vis -vis your patients. But you also have a role vis-a-vis -vis society and shaping policies. And, and you can't do that if, if, if you don't, first of all, understand reality. And if you don't understand reality in the big picture, you can become captive to erroneous understandings, which many do, uh, and become very, very frustrated and very hostile uh, in a way that I have to believe even that it has a partial contribution to clinician burnout. If you feel like reality is up against you and you have no control over it, you don't understand it, why wouldn't you feel burned out, right? So I think in a way all of this hangs together and I uh, I really hope uh, more, more medical schools over time will at least figure out some way to push a little bit more health healthcare policy, healthcare I would just even put it under one big category, you know, the realities of healthcare practice in the 21st century, something like that, to give people a little bit more exposure that this is what you're going into. And these are uh, some of the longstanding issues that this country must continue to confront. But also here are some avenues and opportunities to actually uh, effectuate change. I asked that question because I think that it's groups like yours, the America's uh, Physician Groups, and, and the American Association for Physician Leadership that uh, steps in and uh, fills that gap in education later in uh, providers' uh, lives. And so so thank you for that, because it, it does seem to me that we are uh, preparing um, the physicians to be 
uh, fungible employees and um, the groups like yours are are helping them uh, move in a direction more appropriate for their role in society and their education. So thank you for that. Thank you. You, you uh, gave a keynote address to the American Association for Physician Leadership at their, their Fall Institute. And you touched upon the threat of violence directed towards some physicians. Can you talk a little bit more about that uh, issue and how APG is helping its members with that that topic? Well, I have to confess, we haven't done a lot as an association on that topic, except to um, to recognize that uh, this these. Uh, episodes of violence, and even if it's not violence, just downright hostility um, that uh, we think, and it's fairly obvious that this has been the case, has just reached new heights during the pandemic and now as we are emerging into this, whatever this new phase is of of the combination of uh, not just COVID-19, but of lots of flu cases and RSV and so on, and lots of lots of um, a, a, a major uh, episode, again, that we confront, particularly in the nation's hospitals, of rising levels of hospitalization due to all of those things. What our members have seen is uh, at one with what others have seen, which is lots of ongoing hostility towards clinicians who are providing care to COVID patients in particular, Um, uh, possibly not at the same numbers of the worst instances of hospitalization during the pandemic, but still the case that, uh, and and who's getting sick now uh, uh, and ending up in the hospital because of COVID-19, it's still primarily people who have not been vaccinated ever or who got vaccinated once or twice, but have not maintained any schedule of boosters. Now I say that recognizing that it's not clear that the current boosters are that effective against the current variants, but they do seem to be mitigating uh, the worst instances of disease and hospitalization. So it's we have this mixed picture, but that said, we still have a number of episodes where people are getting hospitalized because of COVID and are resentful when they are told that they have COVID and act out against their clinicians. Uh, And uh, almost all of our members can report instances of just real hostile encounters between patients and clinicians over that set of issues. Um, The violence that we now are seeing it's not clear whether that is related to the same uh, set of phenomena of hostility and polarization around COVID and vaccines and so on, or whether it is more related to what we're seeing throughout the rest of society, which is just abominable rates of gun violence in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, possibly that's a bigger explanation of what's going on, but it is horrific to have seen these instances of gun violence in healthcare systems, in hospitals, uh, against clinicians and so on. And that probably also is correlated with another huge area of intersection that we have in this country, which is mental health issues and gun violence. And of course, I say that, first of all, to emphasize that we know the biggest intersection there is suicide. 
suicides of people who are mentally ill and have access to guns. That's the worst of it. But we also clearly have a, another set of issues around gun violence being used by people who have some level of uh, behavioral health or emotional um, mental stress issues who avail themselves of guns uh, and essentially use them against other persons, including healthcare providers. And that's a much, much bigger issue that I don't think APG alone can get its hands around. And so it's, uh, it's one that AAPL and others, I think, um, should also and that's part of the reason I mentioned this in my talk, we all have to be concerned about this and we have to start to think about these connection points. Uh, it's not just violence against healthcare providers, it's gun violence in our society broadly that is an issue that all of us who care about the health of Americans have to continue to take on and figure out what are we going to do about this. Here, here. Um, our Time is unfortunately almost up, uh, Susan, but but I am interested in what we should expect from APG in 2023. Can you give me some final thoughts, please? We are going to continue to raise the banner of value-based healthcare and uh, work uh, both uh, at the federal level and increasingly at, at the state level also to advocate on behalf of our members for policies that support value-based healthcare. We know that coming up uh, in 2023, we're going to probably see uh, the federal government try to make some changes in the Medicare Advantage program. We salute that because we don't think the Medicare Advantage program works perfectly for anybody at this point, particularly for beneficiaries and certainly for many of our member groups as well. We think now that Medicare Advantage serves almost a half of all of those uh, in our country who are enrolled in the Medicare program. It's a big enough program now in excess of 25 million enrollees that we've got to take problems in that program quite seriously and work to, work to uh, redress them. And so we'll be advocating on behalf of a number of important policies to make that program work even better for Americans and for our provider groups as well. Uh, we also will be doing a lot of advocacy around the other models that have been brought out, the other alternative payment models, uh, all the models underway at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. A number of our members are now in the ACO REACH program, which uh, just reported a very important set of beneficial results in terms of net savings to the government, to taxpayers in the, in the first year of that program. And we believe is going to continue to improve quality to the patients who are served under that program. But we have a lot of advocacy issues that we will continue to push uh, as we try to make that program function even better. And then for all of the models that have come forward, Medicare Shared Savings Program, which I mentioned earlier, uh, the other uh, aspects of care that our members are uh, involved in, uh, the care models that they are involved in, and the importance of connecting those models to other aspects of care. An issue that our groups are really focused on is the integration of primary care and specialty care in these models. And the fact that you can have a, a primary care physician who's functioning very, very effectively in an ACO model, 
but who may be somewhat disconnected from the specialty care that patients uh, receive, and that those uh, those networks need to be tightened. We've got to have everybody marching to the same set of incentives uh, so that specialists are also rewarded for value. Um, and, and also that those practices function in a more connected way, that it's, you don't just throw a patient over the wall as a primary care physician to go off to a specialist and then remain disconnected from that amount of care. You really want those connection points to be in place. And so working to tighten the relationships between physician, uh, primary care physicians and oncologists, primary care physicians and uh, aspects of kidney care, primary care doctors and behavioral and mental health care in particular, uh, primary care and pharmacy related care. There's so much work to be done to make the system function as a system in this country, uh, as opposed to, you know, a blob uh, is really, really important. So we'll be working again to continue to educate our members about what are the best practices out there that can enable these pieces of the system to really come together and function as a system. So we've got a big and robust agenda around advocacy, around education, sharing of best practices. And we look forward to welcoming as many new entrants uh, into all of this, into our APG family. Uh, so for any more information, please uh, please uh, invite anybody listening to this podcast to get in touch with us. Uh, I'm sdenser at apg.org. Uh, my colleague in communications is at communications at apg.org, Greg Phillips. He's another person who can be contacted if uh, people would like to sign up to Washington Update. But we, we, are, we have a big open tent at APG, and we welcome uh, people who want to share our philosophy of really being held accountable for the cost and quality of care. Well, we certainly wish you tremendous uh, success uh, go, going forward. My guest has been Susan Denser. She's the president and chief executive officer of America's Physician Groups. Thank you so much for being on Sound Practice. Thanks so much, Mike. It was a real pleasure. My thanks to Susan Denser for her time and strong efforts on behalf of the medical profession. America's Physician Groups is doing good work. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Had his holy cow, that man Robin would book about.